Good morning. If we could all grab our seats, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, elders, why don't you come over here, please? <laughs> um, good. Well, welcome everyone to this morning's seminar on the roles of women in the church. Uh, this seminar uh, is presented by the elders of FBC, and I'd like to introduce them to you um, so you have faces with names and you know who we are. So from the longest serving elder on the board, we start with Mark Carey. <laughs> Followed by Scott Newland, Phil Cavell, then I'm next, Mike Thomas. Dave Compton uh, has just recently left the elder board to become, come on staff as pastor of seniors and care, but he's been intimately involved in this whole process, so we thought we'd have him up here as well. And then followed by Greg Perkins and Les Sillers. And Joe Hauser is our newest elder. He will actually be ordained next weekend. So if you can all take off your mask for just a minute so people can recognize you. Great. Thank you very much, guys. You can go have a seat. <clears throat> For the past year, the elders have revisited this topic of the role of women in the church. And we were set actually to have this seminar in March. But as COVID-19 began its impact, we postponed the date until today. So thank you all very much for coming. We'd like to open the, uh, the seminar. We've asked a few of our leaders to pray for our time together this morning. So we have Rich Brito, who has led the men's Bible study on Thursday mornings. Beth Orth, who leads the Women in the Word portion of Women of Fellowship Ministry. And Susan Avery, who co-leads the women of, uh, Women's Discipleship portion of Women of Fellowship Ministry with Annette Horton. Uh, Rich, would you please start us off? Gracious Heavenly Father, for the past few days, you have brought to my mind many of your words and principles that you've shown me through your word over the many years. May I speak them now as my own personal prayer and perhaps my prayer for all of us gathered here today. I am reminded that you are the eternal architect of all things, that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works the very roles you have prepared for us beforehand. We're gladly prisoners of the Lord, gathered in this place in the name of Christ, endeavoring to yield to his calling upon us. May you enable us today to live our lives in honorable service to you. May we always reflect your humility, your gentleness, and your patience while bearing with one another in love. We honor and praise you for designing and making us different, yet equal. 
May our diversities never become the means for dividing our unity in Christ, but instead become the means to honor and praise you. Through your enabling Holy Spirit, may we make every effort to be unified through the bond of peace. Today and every day, may Christ be seen in us more and more. Together, we desire to be seen in Christ as one body and one spirit, just as we were called to one hope through our one Lord, our one faith, and our baptism into our triune God who is over all, through all, and in all. May your eternal plan be manifested in all of us today, for in our weakness, we need your spirit to help us. For we do not even know what or how we should pray. Therefore, may your spirit intercede on our behalf and let him search our hearts and conform us to the mind of Christ according to the will of God. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Finally, most gracious Heavenly Father, you've always shown us what is good and what you require of us, simply to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. In closing, as my previous pastor, Robert Lingle, always encouraged me, let us bloom where God has planted us. I ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Our eternal God, the creator of the universe, the sovereign one over all of us. Father, we come before you today um, as children needing a father, as sheep needing a shepherd, as those who would desire to divide the word correctly. Father, we just ask for wisdom from you. We pray for our elders and we pray for our pastors as they so diligently do seek your will and they want so much to put forth the word in a correct way. We thank you, Father, that you have given them to us to shepherd us and to lead us and to direct us. So Father, as we spend the next couple of hours uh, into your word, I ask that you would give each one of us open minds and receptive hearts and Father, we know that your spirit is here among us. And so Father, we would um, ask that any divisiveness or any negative feelings or anything that would come against you would not be able to have a foothold in this time that we have together. Father, when Jesus was here, he prayed that we would have love for one another and that we would have unity. We again ask for that, Father. In the precious name of Jesus. Lord Jesus, I am here this morning uh, just immensely thankful and grateful for this local body of believers that you have given to each one of us. I thank you, Lord, for the love and encouragement that we find here. I'm thankful for the opportunities, Lord, that you give us to serve and to um, build up the body of Christ. Lord, I'm thankful for my brothers and my sisters here that desire, Lord, to honor you in all that they do and say. 
Lord, I pray that we would be vessels for, for your honor and for your purposes. Lord, there is a, a needy, watching world, and I pray, Lord, that we would, that we would be one, that we would desire to honor you above all else. Lord, and may the mind of Christ, our Savior, live in us from day to day by his love and power controlling all we do and say. We thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love for your church. Thank you that you promised that on the truth of the fact that you are the Son of God, you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we see that you have been doing that through these millennium, even till today. Thank you for your love for Fellowship Bible Church. May this morning um, communicate well. May we have ears to hear. And may our hearts be of the same as yours. That is our goal. And as we have already heard, uh, Lord, we pray that we would endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit that we already have in the bond of peace as we come to the unity of the faith, as we learn and grow in your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. <clears throat> this morning, we are going to present five talks on scriptural passages that speak most directly to our topic. We will also present uh, our or affirmation and denial statements. And finally, we'll present a few of our applications that we are making here at Fellowship. As you came in this morning, you may have picked up, or we ask you to go get one if you haven't, pick up uh, the booklet, um, as well as this card, which is for questions and answers. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. The booklet has the five presentations in it with space, uh, should have space for note taking. Um, well, write small. <laughs> Otherwise the booklet would have been really, really huge. Uh, it also has material that will um, be included in a booklet that will be published at a later date and will be made available to the congregation. And that material includes a background statement, a statement on what the Bible says, how it's to be interpreted and applied, and it also will have um, our affirmations and denials document. But right at the very beginning, it does have the agenda, uh, so that uh, is what we will be following this morning. We will also have a question and answer time toward the end of the seminar. And we ask that the questions be submitted in writing on the back of these cards that are made available, and that you would put them in the boxes at the back of the, uh, at the, back of the room at each entrance, or is it only at that entrance? It's at both entrances uh, during our break. And then any time after the break, you can also submit uh, those questions. This morning, we will take all questions uh, but we will only answer questions referring to the biblical interpretation of the scriptures discussed. 
questions regarding application, we will answer at a later time. So please uh, feel free to write them down and submit them. All questions can be submitted anytime after the seminar. Also, questions can be submitted anytime after the seminar to the elders by way of email. And that address is elders at fbcva.org. As a little introduction to our time, I'd like to read this portion. The Bible is not silent on this topic of role of women within the church. No matter your position regarding this topic, it is easy for us to agree that numerous locations in the New Testament address this subject. Passages such as 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15, 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16, and 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verses 34 and 35 are the common verses that have been analyzed and referenced in books and articles written over the years. These passages are at the center of the interpretive debate over this issue. Unfortunately, there is various disagreement over two critical issues. First, what these passages are teaching, which is the interpretation of the text, and secondly, how these passages should be carried out within the church, which is the application. The most important of these two areas of contention is the first disagreement, understanding what the text is teaching. There is always only one interpretation of a passage, one correct intended meaning by the original author. There is probably one intended application by the original author as well. However, there may still be multiple ways the passage can be legitimately applied depending on such factors as time, place, culture, etc. Evangelicals who take the Bible seriously would all agree that God has designed certain gender roles within the church and actually within society at large. And most evangelicals who take the Bible seriously would affirm that passages such as 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 and Titus verses, chapter 1 verses 5 to 6 teach that the role of elders, at least, has been designed designed by God to be filled by qualified men. But is that the only role that men should exclusively fill? Is every other role within the church open to both men and women equally? Well, since Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 teaches that the elders will have to give an account to God for their role of leading Fellowship Bible Church, we the FBC elders are concerned about what God's word says regarding the role of women. Therefore, we are convinced that where the Bible speaks, we are to speak. And where the Bible is silent, we need to be silent. When reading the key passages on the role of women in the church in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, it would seem that the Apostle Paul places limitations on that role. The challenge is to rightly handle the word of truth and attempt to understand what these limitations are and then to properly apply it in our, church, in our local church context in a way that honors God's word and glorifies his name. And with that, I'd like to invite John Morrison to come up and we'll begin our presentations. 
Uh, his is creation, fall, and redemption, a biblical perspective on the roles of women. John? Good morning. You uh, have in your booklets the essential uh, message that I'm trying to bring. I won't be reading it exactly, although at times it'll probably seem it. Um, I'll largely follow it. Um, my goal is to try to lay out a foundation, a biblical I'm gonna call it a biblical portrait of what God says about men and women, not just in the church, in fact, I'm largely leaving the comments about the church to others, but in creation, in the fall, and in the redemptive patterns that the New Testament shows in terms of some of the specific commands to men and women. Because I think there is a unified uh, picture, a unified portrait of what God says about men and women and the way that they're to relate. The problem is that great tension has occurred, especially in the last 60 years, in the home and in society and in the church uh, about men and women. And specifically, I believe that a lot of it really is related, not completely, but a great deal of it is related to ways that women have been marginalized, uh, ways that women have been mistreated, dominated, and equal treatment under the law has often been withheld. And thankfully, our culture has been trying over there, especially the last 60 years, to try to right many of those wrongs, to change laws that needed to be changed, to change some perspectives that needed to be changed. Um, when I think particularly, I've been involved with many women who have undergone abuse, and to see men begin to be held accountable for various abuses. I think that's a good thing in large measure. It's intended to be a, a righting of wrongs, and I think those are good things. Um, even so, I, I believe that in the past 60 years, not all the role discussions and all the changes about the way men and women have related have been for good. Um, in addition to these needed changes that have taken place, there have also been, I believe, an increasingly unbiblical view of men and women, of the family, and of the church. And um, I think we, over the course of time, have lost some discernment. Much of it was an effort to address things that were wrong, which is a good thing, but sometimes what happens is we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sometimes we see a bad thing and then we're so interested in making it right that we actually do something potentially even worse. I'm not going to try to resolve all the tension between the sexes or correct all the ways women have been harmed or uh, address all the ways that we have departed from biblical teaching, but if we can see in creation, see in the fall, and see in the redemptive pattern God has laid out, a portrait that's consistent 
um, I think we can go a long way to saying, wow, maybe God really does have a, a foundational intention that he's trying to communicate to men and women. Um, in spite of the difficulty that we encounter in the church and out of the church, but the, in spite of the difficulties that we see about the way that men and women have tried to wrestle with these role issues, um, I'm confident that the Bible makes plain that Jesus is our Redeemer. He has bought us back, and he's, he's bought us back from the places sin has taken us. And he's done it with the express purpose of putting us back under his righteous rules. So if there are ways that I've fallen short, if there are ways you've fallen short in the way you view men or the way you view women or the way you view this whole issue, the Lord Jesus' intent is not to say story over. He's just saying, I'm going to show you where sin misleads you and I'm going to restore you. And for the ready heart, I hope that's what happens in the church. Let's, let's first look at creation. Let's Let's first look at um, what we see in creation. You know, we, we don't have the time to read all these passages. I'm going to actually read typically just a short portion of a passage, but I've written in the booklet where I'm coming from so that you can look at them, and many of them, most of them, you're familiar with. If we were to look at Genesis 1, for example, we would see a picture of creation that is known as a telescopic view. It's the big picture. You know, it's this big picture of all that God did in creation. And if we were to just look at the few verses in 26 through 28 where he talks about creation of men and women, uh, we don't see any difference between them in the sense that it says he, he made man in his image, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and told them to fill the earth and subdue it. So that's all we get. We get a very, what I would say chapter one is kind of a picture of the real equality between men and women in the sense that we're all made in the image of God. But beginning in chapter 2, we also see, I believe, roles. And where it starts out, it is not, a lot of us who have spent a lot more time in the New Testament are used to God commanding something specific, do this, and commanding something against something else, don't do this. We tend to sometimes think of the instructions of God as always being didactic, Authority speaks down and says, do this, don't do this. It's, it's much more that way. And certainly that is in the Bible. But the vast majority of the scripture isn't that way. So much of the scripture is pictures that God paints. And, and he, he provides enough teaching and instruction in them for us to know what he's teaching. But there are so many ways he paints pictures. For example, I'm just going to read a little bit from Genesis chapter 2 where we begin to see these differences, I think, show up. Then the Lord God, verse 7, says that the man was made first. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it, verse 15. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. And he, the Lord, forms every beast of the field and brings them to the man, and the man gives names to all of them. But for Adam was not found a helper suitable for him, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib he had taken from the man, brought her to the man, and the man said, This now is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. 
For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Well, we have this equality implied in, in chapter 1, uh, where mankind is made in God's image, male and female, but a distinction of roles shows up in this kind of way. For starters, we read that the man was made first. Um, verse 7, while it doesn't say outright that being made first matters, in the Middle East and in virtually every culture until this more um, democratic republic that we're in, and really just especially in the last hundred years, that idea of primogenitor, the firstborn, while that has mattered in virtually every culture throughout human history, it matters less right now in our, in our world, but being made first actually does mean something. There's something that is attached to that. If you will, there's a, um, a determined position and rank and inheritance in almost every culture. And we're going to see some of that unfold as we continue to read. The next thing we see is that before the woman was created, God gives the man a physical responsibility. He gives him the responsibility to cultivate and keep the garden in verse 15, which is going to be the primary realm where he works and manages the dominion that God's given him, as well as the means by which he provides for the family's physical needs. Cultivate translates a word, habad, which means to work or care for. It's a hands-on kind of a word. And keep translates a Hebrew word, shamar, which means to oversee, manage. It has kind of a protecting element, if you will. In that assignment, before the fall or before the woman, the man was to work the ground and manage it so that it would provide for their needs. Then, still before the woman was created, God gives the man a spiritual responsibility. He is told that he may eat from any tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest he die. Uh, we're going to see that spiritual responsibility addressed very shortly, uh, as well as in the New Testament. And finally, in this section, he's assigned the responsibility of naming the animals, and then he names his wife. We see that in chapter 2, verse 23, where he says she shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. She shall be Isha because she is from Ish. And then we see that happen again in chapter 3 and verse 21 when he names her Eve. Like primogenitor, naming in most cultures has always been a mark of headship or leadership. And by itself, I'm not suggesting that being born first or naming automatically conveys roles, but they do illustrate them. Now, it's true that other cultures would very quickly say, yes, that's proof. Um, I, I would say in our day, if we didn't have any more instruction about roles, yeah, maybe there's a head nod towards the possibility of leadership on the part of the man by being born first or by being created first and by naming his wife, but I think we would need more to be able to teach it, and I think we have that. Regarding the creation of the woman, we read, because it was not good that the man be alone, the woman was made, and she was declared suitable for him. And lest we think this is just sort of a, a description without meaning, it just so happens that the man was alone, it wasn't good, God made somebody suitable, Lest we miss that, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 9, this is picked up where we read, man was not made for the woman's sake, but woman was made for the man. So we have to do something with that. Again, if that's the only verse I had, I wouldn't make a case for roles. 
but if it weaves together with the portrait God pays, plays as well as the direct teaching, then I realize, oh my goodness, God was weaving together a tapestry of roles. The next thing we see is that God assigns the man the responsibility of leaving his father and mother and joining to his wife. Many times we overlook this because, of course, a woman, when she gets married, is also leaving her father and mother. Uh, so it's not that the, man, that the woman doesn't do that, but the burden for it, according to the scripture, says that the man is to leave his father and mother. The man is to cleave to his wife. I believe that's a picture of the fact that the primary burden for launching out into a new home is the man's. That's something that's not seen in our day. There are a lot of young men today who don't understand that they have the primary burden of being able to say, yes, I'm leaving my father and mother, and yes, she's leaving her father and mother, but I need to take a lead in this, and not only do I take a lead in leaving, uh, meaning a primary responsibility for helping establish this new home we have, but I'm also to take the primary responsibility in cleaving. You see, in our day, very many men don't understand that for marital unity to take place, one of the requirements was that he would pursue her. He would cleave to her. He would draw near her. That's not that she doesn't do that to him, but the primary burden in creation was not for her to be the one to make that happen. And I'll tell you, that's been one of the areas that we have dropped the ball the most in the church among many men uh, today is that many of us have taken for granted what we have if we happen to be married. And we've failed to take a burden that was given to commanded to the man. You are the one who takes the lead on this. Now, um, again, these passages don't lay out a law like here are your roles, but they're showing something. They're showing the man being made first. They're showing him with the responsibility to tend and keep, provide. They show him the spiritual leadership responsibility of of what he's supposed to do with regard to eating, and then a, a type of headship with the woman, which is implied not only by being made first and by naming her and by the fact that he takes the primary role in leading, um, but other scripture that we're going to continue to see, there is this movement on God's part um, to, to provide these roles. Now, some scholars would say that the sex and role distinctions that you see in Genesis 2 and even Genesis 3 are just descriptive. In other words, they say there's no meaning to it. It just happens to be that the man was made first. It just happens to be that the man named. It just happens to be that God told the man to do this in the garden and he just happened to make the woman. He could have done it the other way around, and he could have. That's certainly a point, but he didn't. And if there is more instruction coming up, that fleshes this out even more, I think we have good reason to think there really is a picture of headship that is laid out and a role of what happens between the man and the woman. And I think then, if that's the case, these things are not merely descriptive, they also are prescriptive. By the way, I do think it's interesting that they will become one flesh is for both the man and the woman. That is, the... Emotional unity and the physical unity of the marriage is something that God lays on both men and women. It's something we're to build together. He could have said, now it's on the man to make this happen, or it's on the woman to make this happen. He doesn't do that. That the man and his wife shall be one flesh. And that's not merely talking about physical intimacy. 
It's talking about a heart of unity. It's something that's, that one flesh is pictured in the sexual relationship, but that's just the picture of it. It's really, does the man, and we're going to see this shortly, does the man relate to his wife in such a way, and does the wife relate to her husband in such a way that they become more and more one? That's exactly what God intended. Those are some of the pictures that we see about roles within creation. Let's look at the fall. Uh, we'll look at the fall, and again, you guys are familiar with it, and I won't read the whole chapter of, of, of uh, Genesis 3, but I'd like to suggest that there are lots of pictures of roles that show up here. To begin with, it's worthy to note that the devil went after Eve first. He didn't go after the man. And we can ask the question, is that intentional and role-related, or is it just a coincidence? Based on what we're going to see in just a moment, and based on 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, I think it was intentional and role-related. As soon as sin comes and the man and the woman try to avoid God, Genesis 3, verses 9 through 12, says that God called the man out first. He could have called out the woman like Satan did. After all, the woman took the fruit first. Or he could have called both of them out, since they both took part. But he first calls to the man with a singular masculine pronoun and asks three questions. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I told you not to eat? This is a one-on-one -on -one with the man. The woman's right there, and he will talk to her in a moment, but he's carrying this out to the woman. And, and lest we think that this is merely descriptive of what happened, which again, many of the scholars say that's just a description of the record of what happened. It's kind of a culturally imbued sort of a thing. Here's the thing. Um, what does the New Testament say about the very same event? Romans chapter 5 tells us that sin came into the world through one man. In fact, it says it came through one man and names him Adam. And in these few verses, the Bible refers nine times to the man through whom sin came and never once mentions the woman. I think that's more than incidental. When the man is mentioned repeatedly and then Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. There's a, there's a spiritual parallel that he's making. Just like there's a spiritual par parallel later in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5 when we look at the parallel of the man, what he's to be like Christ, uh, and the woman like the church in terms of their relationship. But the point I'm making is the spiritual leadership that God imbued the man with by making him first, by giving him the responsibility of naming, by... Um, commanding him of what not to do before the woman was even there is being born out here. He's carrying it out with the man. Now, by saying this, I'm not saying that the woman didn't sin. I'm just saying that because of roles assigned by God, which God has not already laid out didactically, but he has shown by portrait and that he talks about didactically later, the man is the one held responsible for the sin that passed on to the world. And it's because of his leadership role. In his response, I think this is so interesting. Again, we can look at it and just say, well, it's just the way it happened. I just think it's so, it's so much like God to show deep truths in small responses. The man, in his response to God, blames his wife and indirectly blames God. He says, the woman you gave me, she took from the fruit and gave it to me, and I ate. 
I don't think that's merely a thorough answer. I don't think that's just him saying, let me tell you all the facts, God. It's, I, I'm totally neutral on what you do with this. I think there's an intention to move the spotlight off of him because the spotlight is clearly on him and he wants it on the woman and he wants a little bit of it to be diffused over to God. It's kind of like, I'll take 25% of the blame, God, but I think you need to take 25 and I think that lady really probably needs the rest. And, and here's the thing. In the man's role to lead, protect, and provide for his wife, if, that's, if his assignment is that, and if we see that continue to be supported throughout the Bible, such that by the time we get to the New Testament, we can say, wow, there is a clear portrait laid out here. It should be no surprise to us that the minute sin comes into the world, the man's going to be the exact opposite of all of that. You look at what the man does here. And he throws her under the bus. He's willing to sacrifice her. How many times in the middle of an argument between a husband and a wife are we as men inclined not to look at our own heart, but to look at her heart? To look at how we can shift the blame over here because we're not beginning first with ourselves, which is precisely what a spiritual leader is supposed to do. Notice the next thing that further delineates roles. When God speaks judgment on the woman, notice where he speaks the judgment. I will multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The temporal judgment of sin will be something she would uniquely experience in the context of being a woman. Uniquely in her roles as a woman. She'll be affected through the pain of childbirth. She will desire, whatever that is, we'll get to that in a minute, her husband, she will be ruled by, whatever that is, and we'll get to that in a moment, none of those could be applied to a man. That is to say that the specific ways God pronounces a judgment on the woman are going to be experienced in the context of her role as a woman. These hardships that she is to experience reveal her role is accentuated even more when we look at the first, two, first of two words in this prophetic judgment. When God says your desire will be for your husband, that English word uh, desire is from a Hebrew word, teshuga, which can be translated there. Typically, commentators will give three translations to it. Um, a Hebrew scholar, Susan T. Foe, showed 50 years ago that one of the best interpretations, and particularly in this context, that it fits best, is a desire to control. In fact, that's how the New Living Translation translates that word. Um, part of the support for that, not only does it fit in Genesis 2, but in the very next chapter, God says to Cain, sin's desire is for you, but you must master it. You notice the, a parallel structure. Sin's desire is for you, conversely, you must master it. Now back to Genesis chapter 3. Your desire will be for him, and he will rule over you. And some people will write, they'll say, you see, headship was never required before the fall. Uh, it was, it, headship was a judgment on the woman. That's not true. How we know that is when it says rule, it's not talking about a position. That particular word, masal, is a unique word, and what it has to do with is harshness and dominion. It would be similar to our word abuse. So it wouldn't be out of character if God said, your desire will be to control him, but he will end up abusing, being abusive towards you. Now, God's not saying that's what he wants. He's saying this will be the result of sin. 
And part of the proof of that is going to be what we're going to see in the New Testament in just a moment. So we have this idea of a woman being tempted to control her husband and a husband being tempted to massal his wife, to to, uh, dominate her harshly. So what we have in creation is that God made the man first, a picture of position. He gave him the responsibility to work the land and manage it, a picture of provision. He gave him the command about eating and not eating, a picture of spiritual responsibility. He made the woman to help the man in aloneness and in bearing children, showing a role of service and nurture. God gave the man responsibility to name her, a picture of headship. He gave the man responsibility to leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, a picture of leading the two of them towards a new home that they would build together and giving tender care to her. That cleaving is that idea of the fact that he's caring for her and moving towards her in unity. And then God gives both of them the responsibility to be one flesh. But following sin, God holds the man spiritually responsible for the sin. The woman's consequence from the fall will involve her role as a childbearer and her role as a wife to a husband. The man's consequence from the fall will involve this battle for control with his wife and frustrating strain in his work. Here's what happens. The roles that were designed by God to actually be edifying and God-honoring instead come out distorted. That's going to be even more apparent when we see the last section, the section on redemption. We're going to see not only the distortion, uh, but we're going to also see the fact that God is trying to right things. He, through the redemption, he's trying to bring us back to more of the created order. By the way, before you see roles in the New Testament, remember something. The passage most often used as we move on to redemption, the final section in this, as we move towards the roles of women and men, and we often would look at Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33, remember something. That passage actually begins with Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 that says, imitate God as dearly beloved children. And even more in the context, it follows on the heels of Ephesians 5.21 that says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. As a matter of fact, that 5.21 is actually the headstone for everything that follows. So what you've got, before we get into the roles that are talked about in the New Testament, let's remember this. Just like Genesis 1 shows an equality of nature, so too in the New Testament we see an equality. We see be imitators of God as dearly beloved children and submit yourselves one to the other or subject yourselves one to the other. Now the role of how the man subjects himself is different than how the woman does. So it's not saying it's merely a mutual submission society as if there is no role because let's see what the text tells us. Reading from Ephesians 5:23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. Remember, this is not Masal, this is, this is a role. It reflects the 1 Timothy 3 principle where we see that the man is responsible to manage this household well, that is to shamar his own family and home. That reminds us in turn of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, where we read, Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, not saying that Every man is the head of every woman, but a man is the head of a woman if he is married. And God is the head of Christ. Each of those statements reveals the man's position as head over his wife and household, not as an arbitrary new commandment, but as clear continuation of biblical instruction ever since creation. By the way, I love how 1 Corinthians 11 provides two corrections in this area of headship. One to the man, one to the woman. The the correction to the man is 
Notice it says, Christ is the head of the man. Which means before the man goes strutting his stuff and thinking, I'm something because I'm appointed to be head in the area of marriage, he better recognize he's under someone else's authority. That's meant to humble him right from the get-go. But there's also a correction for the woman. Lest she think that because her husband is described as her head, that she thinks she's in a diminutive position, that she's in an insignificant position, that somehow she's not his equal, the very same passage says, and God is the head of Christ. Same language. What it's saying is, just as Jesus submits himself to the Father, so too a wife is to submit herself to their husband. It's part of a created order reflecting the image of God. It's a good thing, it's not a bad thing. These declarative statements about the identity and responsibility of the man and woman are consistent throughout the New Testament. And this is so important, don't lose this. They are the very opposite of what the fall would have induced them towards naturally. The fall inclines the man to dominate harshly or to back away from his responsibility. The fall inclines the woman to try to control her husband. But in the face of those inclinations, she is to do just the opposite. She is to subject herself in the fear of Christ to her own husband as to the Lord, verses 21-22. She is to, as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be subject to their husbands in everything, not in sin. Acts chapter 5, verses 1-9 through 9 make that clear in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. She's not to subject herself to her husband in sin. Similarly, Peter says, be submissive to your husband so that even if they are disobedient to the word, they might be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. This is a consistent message. And in the face of his instincts to dominate or to back away, to kind of avoid um, uh, conflict or failure, the New Testament commands him in the exact opposite direction, to live with her in an understanding way. That's the opposite of Masal, to treat her as a weaker vessel. And it's, and it's clearly not saying so look down upon her because the very next phrase is, and treat her as a co-heir of the grace of life. And the warning is, if you don't do that, your prayers will be hindered. What God is saying is, if you ask me to answer your prayers, I'm living with you in an understanding way. I'm listening to you. I'm treating you as someone weaker because I could squish you. And I'm treating you as my child. You're, you're connected to my son. You can't do that with your wife. Why in the world would I honor your prayers? I'm asking you to do something far easier than what I do. But each of those is the opposite of what happens because of the fall. What's more, if a man were really to treat his wife like he is called to in the New Testament, and which really is a reflection of the created order, if he were to treat her as an equal, whom he wants to know and protect and cherish and love and sacrifice himself for, he would actually be restoring the original design that God made him for, to be a protective head, a loving leader, a cleaving lover, and a friend. When we get to the church, we're going to see that this pattern of men leading, such as elders are, are men, teachers in the congregation are men, that's going to continue. Not as a new thought or afterthought, but as the continuation of God's revealed plan for men and women in community. I'm going to leave room for others to speak to the direct implications for women in the church. Uh, for example, we're going to see 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, and 1 Corinthians 14, 34, women are not to teach or exercise authority over men in the church, but to be silent which I think refers to spiritual speech in the formal assembly of believers. My job has just been to show that God has designed roles for men and women from the beginning, that they're reflected in the created order and the creation responsibilities. 
Those roles are accentuated and made even more evident in the account of the fall, how it happened, who did what, how God judged it, what happened as a result of the fall. And the New Testament continues that same tradition with instructions to men and women in the home that are a direct antidote to the effects of the fall and a direct effort to reestablish creative pr creation purposes of men and women. As Mark and others will address women's roles in the body of Christ, they're gonna show the New Testament instructions of the church are consistent with the creation, fall, and redemption pattern. They're not arbitrary, they're not outdated. They're a continuation of the redemptive plan of God, doing through the church what he is doing in the family as part of his self-revelation to the world. So I wanted to address this topic of angels and authority, God's purpose for the church in instructing the angelic realm. Uh, we know that God is the creator and we are his creation. As such, we should recognize we are under his authority for him to use us as he determines for his purposes. But besides humans, God has also created intelligent spirit beings that he communicates with and employs to accomplish his purposes. These spirit beings are called angels. So what do angels have to do with gender roles in the church? Why is it important to bring them into this discussion? Angels include both unfallen angels and fallen angels who are also known as demons. Often in discussions about angels, we concern ourselves with the impact that they have on us, particularly demons and their leader, Satan. We see this in Ephesians chapter six, and as well as other places. And this is good and a profitable discussion. However, we do not often discuss for what purposes God uses us as the church to impact the angelic realm, both angels and demons. So an aspect of this discussion on gender roles in the church is found in Ephesians chapter three, and I would like to read these verses. Uh, first of all, chapter three, verses one through uh, seven, and then 10 and 11. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if you indeed have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge into the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. And then verses 10 and 11, and here's the purpose statement, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesian church a beautiful letter teaching them so much about the truth of who the church is. He describes the concept of the church as having been a mystery in the ages before Christ's resurrection. 
But what is God's purpose for the church? And part of that purpose is to make known God's manifold wisdom to the angelic realm. What is the definition of manifold? It's by Miriam Webster, they say that it's marked by diversity or variety. God's wisdom has many facets to it. And one of these facets that God wants to communicate through the church to the angels and demons has to do with authority. Angels struggle with authority. And I wanna read two passages. Now, one first in Ezekiel 28, verses 14 and 15. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. And then in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Lucifer and the angels that followed him had a problem with God's authority. They were created perfect and holy without iniquity, but at some point, likely between the uh, day seven of creation and the temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden, Lucifer was found to have iniquity within. He said in his heart, I will be like the Most High. So turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 3 through 12, I want to highlight a, this passage and a very important part in it. So reading there, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved. Let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man comes through woman, but all things are from God. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians for a number of stated reasons. He was in Ephesus at the time that visitors came from Corinth and gave a report to Paul of how things were going in the church back in Corinth. Mostly, it was not a good report. And Paul starts his letter by addressing things that the Corinthians were just wrong about. These include divisions, sexual immorality, lawsuits. 
Then in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul begins to answer questions that the Corinthians had posed written in a letter sent to him by the visitors to Ephesus. He continues to address these questions until chapter 11, verse 17, where he shifts his focus to the purpose and the proper behavior of what he calls the gathering. But in this second section, the last question that Paul addresses is this second, in this second section is regarding head coverings. Should women wear head coverings? Should men wear, cover their heads? In answering the question, Paul states foundational truths that address the issue. These truths address authority and headship and the reasons for them. Christ is the head of every man and the woman, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Man is the image and glory of God and therefore should not cover his head. Woman is also the image of God as is established in the first chapter of the Bible, but she is the glory of man. This is emphasized by the creation order of man, not from woman, but woman from man. Man was not created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Then Paul makes this remarkable statement that the woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Everyone in proper relationship, God, Christ, man, woman, instructs the angels of God's wisdom much has been said about, and much should be said about, proper authority. One key aspect of that discussion should be what God is communicating to the angels through the church functioning as God designed regarding authority. I want to take a look at a couple other passages in regards to authority. All authority has been given to me is what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. After the man, Jesus, completely accomplished all that the Father had purposed for him by being obedient, even unto the death on the cross, he was given all authority by God in heaven. He was given all authority by God in heaven and on earth. That authority is complete and over every angelic being and every human being and indeed over all of creation. Complete authority can only be held by one person. Otherwise it is shared or subordinate authority. Only Jesus has all authority, no one else has it. From his complete authority, Christ delegates partial authority to different ones for a time. The authority the man has toward the woman is partial and for a time. While here on earth, men and women of the church are placed in the church as the Holy Spirit sees fit, and this includes gender as well as spiritual gifts. But gender is for a time, as Jesus explains to the Sadducees in Matthew 22. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of heaven, of God, angels of God in heaven. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection from the dead, and Jesus disputes their claim and their example by stating the overarching truth that in the resurrection, there is no marriage. But we will be sexless as the angels are. The authority of man to the woman will end in the resurrection. 
However, in the re resurrection, there will be a marriage that will last forever in eternity, the marriage of the lamb to his bride. And we read in Revelation 19, verses seven to eight, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. For all eternity, the saints, the church, both men and women will be the bride of Christ. We will all be in the role of the wife to our husband who is our head. Before the resurrection, we who are alive in the church are to live out this image of Christ and his church as an instruction God uses to the angels and demons. So, in summary, we should be aware of God's intent to use us as the church to instruct the angels and demons regarding authority. As we live out this life, biblical authority, as we live out in this life, biblical authority, God demonstrates a facet of his manifold wisdom to the angelic realm. This is one reason why we should accurately understand the roles within the church as we walk accordingly. And now I'd like to invite Mark up. He's going to talk to us about, uh, take us through Second or First Timothy chapter two. Mark. Thanks, Mike. Um, in your uh, brochure at the very opening pages there, we gave some definitions. Um, egalitarianism, complementarianism, these are terms that describe uh, the kind of two separate views on uh, the topic we're dealing with today. Egalitarian teaches uh, not only that uh, all people are equal before God in their push personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home, the church, and the society. Complementarianism teaches that although men and women are created equal in their being and personhood, they are created to complement each other via different roles in life and in the church. Both positions affirm the absolute equality of men and women in their being, their personhood, dignity, and worth, but differ when it comes to whether they are distinct God-given roles and functions associated with each gender, and especially as it pertains to the home and to the church. So obviously we teach here and have since the beginning of this church complementarianism, which is uh, I would say probably the historic uh, evangelical position. Um, but egalitarianism is increasingly becoming um, um, uh, more widespread. And um, thus today, we've been asked to, well, where, what, what is the biblical basis of uh, this complementarian position? Uh, what does the Bible have to say? And what have the elders concluded in our study on this? And so that's why we want to present this again um, to you. Um, we believe that, as John has laid out, there are um, biblical foundations in creation for that understanding of role differences, uh, and they have um, value in the home, uh, in the church, and society. Uh, but as Mike has just shared, there is also something supernatural in, in, the, in the unseen realm of value of understanding these roles. Um, doing Bible study is hard work, and it's difficult to get into the phrases God communicated uh, in His Word um, 
through verbs and nouns and participles. He communicated to those original authors that were moved upon by the Holy Spirit. And what they wrote down was, was correct. It was without error. The, the problem comes when we who, uh, who are sinful and uh, do not speak ex cathedra, uh, look at those words and nouns and participles and uh, what was originally written and try to understand it. But we are sinners, and so we have to prayerfully and humbly come before God and say, what does your word say? Um, so as we continue laying this foundation, uh, I want us to move into the New Testament realm, and there are some key passages related as we've shared already, that are very pertinent to this idea of roles within the home and within the church. And one of those key passages is 1 Timothy 2. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of Good works, as is proper for women to make a claim to God in this. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, and I do, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but it was the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But the woman will be preserved or saved through the bearing of children if they continue in the faith and love and sanctity and with self-restraint. Obviously, verse 11 and 12 um, are pertinent to our discussion and uh, are also difficult. Um, and if you just looked at verse 11 and 12, you would have to conclude, well, Paul's prohibiting something, but what is it that he is prohibiting? What is um, he saying here? And we have to, I think, under, also understand the overall context of, uh, of this First Timothy passage. Why was Paul writing 1 Timothy? Well, he tells us in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I'm writing so that you know how you, can, you are to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. How to conduct yourselves in the household of God. So Paul goes on and he explains some of those instructions about how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. He talks about uh, we are to uh, guard against uh, uh, false doctrine in chapter 1, or uh, what's the proper uh, understanding of church leadership, and he lays that out in chapters 3 and 5, or how uh, family relationships in the church, how we treat one another, it's chapter 5 and in chapter 6, just general directives to Timothy uh, as he shepherds the church in Ephesus, he writes. Some of Paul's instructions focused upon the gathering of the church and the proper decorum when worshipers meet together. And that's what this passage is referring to in chapters uh, 2, verses 8 through 15. So if we look at this a little bit more deeply, uh, chapter 2, verse 8 says, Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And there's that little phrase, I want men in every place. It's a phrase that indicates Paul is concerned about when the church is gathered, in every place when the church is gathered, when it meets to worship, men are to lift up holy hands. And the word that he uses for, for men there uh, is the word, is a Greek word, aner. And um, we'll see that uh, plays uh, in the next couple of verses. Um, 
So he wants proper decorum. Men, uh, lift up holy hands and do it without wrath and dissension. Uh, there was probably something going on there that uh, we may not know the specifics of, but uh, um, the prayer meetings uh, and the worship gatherings probably weren't uh, always uh, friendly, friendly meetings. Verse 9 and 10 says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Paul, again, his directive to women is regarding their attitudes. He directs them to dress properly, not ostentatiously, to, to draw attention to themselves, but modestly and make their claim of godliness through their good works. Um, historians, uh, interesting kind of sideline, in the first century there's evidence and archaeological evidence that things like hairstyles were um, of prominent women in ancient Rome, specifically emperors' wives, set the trends. And uh, we have evidence uh, like in Ephesus where Timothy was writing to the church in Ephesus, these things were uh, kind of the trends of the day were taking place, uh, captured in that term braided hair. Um, and Paul is simply saying, don't follow, don't make your claims to, to um, your, 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 um, who you are, your identity, by the trends of the day. Make it by the heart. Um, now, verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12 it says, a woman must quietly, or the King James says, in silence receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. This is kind of ground zero in the women's role issues here. In verse 11, first of all, you notice that there is a change uh, from the plural in verse 9 and 10. Women are to dress this way to a singular in verse 11. A woman must quietly receive in um, instruction. Um, now, some would say, well, there must have been a problem in the church at Ephesus, so now moving from the general statement, he's going to focus on a particular issue and probably a particular woman. Um, the grammar does not support that. This is, he's speaking of women generically. This is what's called, it's a noun that's called an anarthrous noun. There's no article in front of it. If there was an article in front of it, then you could say, yeah, there is a particular woman in mind. Down in verse 14, he actually uses the word woman and puts an article in front of it in verse uh, 14 because he has a, a particular woman in mind. He's referring to, to Eve in that context, but here not. So he's referring, making a, a statement, a generic statement. Furthermore, the terms that are, are used here, again, man, aner, woman is the word gune. Although these terms, man, woman, aner, gune, are the same words that can be applied or translated husband and wife, it is important to understand that the context determines meaning. And in this context, Paul has been talking about men in general and women in general. Men are to lift up holy hands, women are to adorn themselves. And nowhere in the context is there a shift to husbands and wives. Now, again, egalitarians would say, um, well, this passage refers only to um, within the church, uh, a wife should respect her husband and certainly not uh, be in a domineering way over her husband. Uh, but the context is not talking about husband and wife relationships. It's talking about the generic role of 
men and women in the church. Now, some writers will uh, say, well, it's very similar, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, John alluded to that, that passage, which clearly speaks to husbands and wives. And so, some would say, well, that's how we should understand 1 Timothy 2. We should interpret these passages in light of just husband and wife relationships and not generally with the church. However, the key hermeneutical principle is that the immediate context determines the meaning and the context of 1 Timothy shows us that Paul is referring generically to men and to women. It seems improbable that Paul would insert a teaching on husband and wives in the midst of his teaching of, of the worship order when the church gathered. Furthermore, despite some parallels with 1, Timothy, 1 Peter 3, there are still clear differences. The context of 1 Peter tells us that the aner and the gune, the husband and wife, um, that is the, the context. He's talking about the marriage relationship. But the context, again, in 1 Timothy 2 is referring generically to men and women in the church. If one insists he's taking or talking about the husbands and wives in uh, verse 11 and 12, then why isn't Paul talking about husband and wives of lifting up holy hands and dressing appropriately? Again, the point is he's speaking generically about the roles of men and women. And Women are to be, it says, receive the instruction quietly. It's the same word that is used in verse 2 of that chapter, which means to lead a quiet or tranquil life. It refers to a quiet demeanor and a spirit that is peaceable instead of argumentative. Second of all, it says that women should learn in submission. Again, it speaks to a woman's demeanor, a general attitude toward the teaching of God's Word when the church is gathered. Now, again, some egalitarians would say, well, that word is used, submissiveness, and over in Ephesians about the marriage relationship. So, it must mean the marriage relationship here. No, again, context determines meaning. Paul is calling upon women to have a respectful and accepting attitude as the word is being taught in the church. Now, certainly this should also be the attitude of any man sitting under the teaching of God's word as well. But there was something happening in the early church that required Paul to specifically call out women and direct them to learn quietly and submissively. And by the way, notice that women are not hindered to learn the Word. This verse doesn't prohibit learning theology and truth, only that disruptive or unsubmissive attitude while they are learning. Now, verse 12 specifically we have to focus on because, again, I really think this is the, the kind of ground zero point in this whole discussion. Some believe the prohibition here in verse 12 uh, was only directed at the particular church that Timothy uh, was pastoring. I don't allow a woman to teach or exert authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And because that doesn't really fit our cultural day, um, certainly Paul just had something involved there with the Ephesian church, and it doesn't apply to us today. Now, in just a moment, Don Denharto will get up and share verses 13 and 14, how he ties it back to what John Morrison just taught in the book of Genesis. So, it's, it's, it, is, uh, it, it transcends um, um, this, this application. It transcends the, the situation back in the first century. It is timeless. Now, the key to understanding this verse centers on the two infinitives that are connected together by a conjunction. I'm going to get a little technical here. Those two infinitives, if you look at your text, are the infinitives to teach and to exert authority over a man. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exert authority over a man. 
Now, there are a couple of key syntactical and, and lexical uh, issues in that really small phrase that are really crucial to understand if we're going to interpret this phrase correctly. First of all, let me share the lexical issues. The Greek word for this second um, infinitive is a, is a Greek word, authentao. Now, some writers, egalitarian writers, insist that this word has a negative a negative connotation to it, so that it should be translated to domineer over a man. I do not, what, and, and so the interpretation is what Paul is, de, is denying is for a woman to teach in a domineering spirit over a man. Not that they can't teach men, but they just can't do it in a domineering way. And so, uh, is that what the word means? Granted, this word, authenteo, is a very rare word used only here in the New Testament, and it's only found maybe seven, eight times prior to the 4th century A.D., so we don't have a whole lot to go on here. Um, there is about 114 uh, uses of the term in extent Greek literature um, beyond that, um, but not much evidence to go on. Uh, scholars believe that this word, authenteo, comes from a, a, a noun, authentes, but Here's the problem when you do this lexical work. There are two different meanings for that noun form, authentase. Just like I can throw out the word cool. Well, I might mean, gee, he, she's, sure, uh, she's a cool person. Or it's, it's a bit cool in here. Authentase, as they dug up and read these ancient Greek literature, they found that there was a couple of different meanings for authentase. One of the meanings is murderer. That's a negative connotation. The other is a more neutral term, master. Murderer is attested to 24 times, but it's attested to 24 times in what's called Attic Greek, which comes from the 4th or 5th or 4th century B.C. After that, the interesting thing is this, the meaning of this term of murderer is rare, and it predominantly means more the neutral master. There are 30 other cases of this use of this noun up until A.D. 312. And in each of these cases, the meaning is not in a negative connotation. Again, that's the noun form. We're looking at the verbal form used only one time in the, in the New Testament and only seven or eight times before the fourth century. This verbal form, authenteo, overwhelmingly the majority of the use of the hundred sometimes after that, A.D. through 12, is not in the negative, it's in the more neutral master. Now, egalitarians will go back to the ancient, more ancient language, the 4th or 5th century B.C., and pick up that concept of murder, the negative, and now they're applying it into the 1st century and saying, well, it was used that way here, and yet proper word study and the scholars have shown that negative connotation slipped away and the more neutral or positive connotation is used. And so to understand authenteo in a negative way does not seem to fit the overall lexical evidence. Um, then I want to focus on the little coordinating conjunction, um, which is this little word, ude, ude. The conjunction ude, core, uh, what's called a coordinating conjunction, it's meaning in its normal use, does not join two separate ideas into a single idea, but joins two separate concepts that retain their distinctiveness. 
And yet those ideas, two of them separate, can convey a larger overall idea. Okay, what's that mean? Paul's intent is not to pro- prohibit teaching authoritatively or teaching in a domineering way where those two infinitives are brought together to try to convey one concept. The Greek language calls it a hindiades. Two ideas brought together to convey one thought. And egalitarians will use that phrase and say, no, those two words are brought together in one Con, uh, one, uh, to convey one idea, women are prohibited to not to do domineering teaching over. But these are two distinct infinitives that are joined by a, cor- a coordinating uh, uh, conjunction, ude, and um, the, the, the Greek pattern of syntax is that when two infinitives are connected with this coordinated conjunction, ude, they share the same force Either both of the terms are positive or both of the terms are negative. Both to teach or to exercise authority have to therefore be either negative or positive because of the the nature of Greek syntax. Now, if we look at um, how the word to teach is used in the pastoral epistles, it's used always in a positive way. Teaching is good. To teach is good. And the only time there's a negative uh, part to it is when um, there's further elucidation in the context, teaching false doctrine, teaching inappropriately. That's not what we have here. So to teach is positive. I don't allow a woman to teach. And therefore, by the Greek syntax and construction with ude, a a coordinating conjunction, the next infinitive, or to exert authority over a man, must also not be in a negative way, that is a dominating uh, way or an inappropriate way, but it is also a neutral or positive thing. Exercising authority can be good. Parents need to do it. Authorities need to do it. And Paul is saying within the church, authority also has to be exercised. He's just saying women are not to be in positions where they teach or exert authority over men in that context. Um, So Paul is not talking about false or improper teaching or false or improper authority as if he is writing against women who teach false doctrine or exercise authority in a domineering fashion. Again, the syntax and the lexical evidence won't permit that. And in fact, all major Bible translations down through the years don't put that negative spin on this phrase. Um, Now, we can get more into the particular details of those things and the research on that, I simply want to convey this truth. Given the syntactical and lexical evidence, I believe one must only conclude that Paul is instructing, that what he's instructing, that is when the church gathers, when you come into that place, when you gather for worship, Paul's instructions in this verse seems to indicate Women are not to be teachers or spiritual authorities over men, but are to exhibit an attitude in learning God's Word when the church is formally gathered of a submissive and quiet spirit. Now again, down through, um, say, the last 56 years, when people have read these verses, it's like, can we just cut these verses out? (laughs) Because I don't like what it says there. And 56 years ago, a more liberal uh, wing of, of feminism within the church did just that. They said, you know, Paul was just blatantly wrong. He was a, he was a, um, you know, he was a bigot. 
and they discarded that. When I was going to seminary uh, and 40-some years ago, those were the writers that we were interacting with. Uh, as of late, um, people in the more evangelical or conservative realm are slipping more towards the egalitarian position, and they're saying, oh, we don't necessarily like what that verse is saying. It's not necessarily meshing with our culture. There must be something in the Greek language that we're missing, and so they're attempting to take these phrases and these words and say, well, it really is not meaning what it is saying, and that is dangerous. And when you look at the Greek and the, the lexical evidence and the syntactical evidence, you just got to conclude that this is exactly what Paul is saying. Now, I'm going to invite Don Denhartog up because he's going to continue with that, that passage, and you look at verses 13 and 14, and the Apostle Paul is going to give some reasons why he concluded that. And it doesn't have to do with what was going on in Ephesus. It has something to do with what John was talking about in Genesis. So, Don? Okay, good morning. Um, I was sharing with Bo Spires yesterday that when it comes to technicalities of Greek syntax and grammar, etc. It can sound a little uh, complicated, and it is complicated, but I wanted to share with you before I read my manuscript, uh, by the way, my edition in the booklet is just bullet points. I have a manuscript here that I'll be reading actually to you today. But I was sharing with Bo that in the medical world you have those who are working in the laboratories, um, developing medications, uh, experimentations, etc. Then you have physicians that take the results of that research, and then you have the patient who is the recipient of that research and doesn't understand the, the tech uh, technical details of it, but benefits from it all. And in many ways, that's what takes place in biblical teaching is that there are the technicians, uh, that's who we went to study under in seminary and so forth and took years of uh, language study, um, to study under those technicians and then to, as pastors, kind of serving like a, a physician, we seek to prescribe what somebody else did for us and helped us understand and to bring it down more into a practical level and then for people to benefit from that teaching eventually. So as we do some of these more detailed things, which I'm going to as well, uh, to a degree, uh, please keep in mind that there's a purpose in it. There's a benefit of it to the body of Christ. My topic is entitled, The Salvation of the Woman, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, but we'll look at verses 13 and 14 in context. In summary, concerning translations, most of the translations interpret the, or translate, I should say, the last verse, verse 15, nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing uh, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. The exceptions to that are the New International Version and the New American Standard Version that translates it, but women will be saved. The other versions, the English Standard Version, the New King James Version, and the King James Version all translate it that she shall be saved as a singular versus women as a plural. 
that said, shall be saved is a singular verb. It's future, it's indicative, and it is a singular verb. As we look at this passage of chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, I'd like to also address the broad context. Then, as I was listening to Mark, and we did not confer with one another in our study preparations and manuscripts, there's a little bit of overlap, but I think it'll be beneficial. In 1 Timothy 3.15, but if I am delayed, I write, so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. In this passage, it is understood to be a thematic statement, and if it is, it's stating the purpose of the epistle. Then the Bible must be take must then the Bible student must take this statement into consideration in seeking the interpretation of each individual part of the epistle. In his commentary on the pastoral epistles, J.N.D. Kelly, who's a principal at St. Edmund Hall in Oxford, entitled his comments on the whole of this chapter as, quote, ordering of public worship, end quote. He writes, this section dealing with the importance of public worship and the conduct appropriate at it And the following chapter, with its direction for the ministry, formed the earliest manual of church order that we possess. The necessity of clear regulations for congregational gatherings was speedily realized in the primitive church. Kelly is not the only commentator who subtitles this section of the epistle under the subject of conduct within the church meeting. Paul outlines directives regarding prayers by the men, as Marcus communicated, modest attire by the women, the man's teaching role, and to understand these directives as referring to matters outside of the assembly meeting of the church would be contradictory to other New Testament passages. Women are given guidelines for public prayer. They're given guidelines for exercising the gift of prophecy in a public setting. And that's found in the book of 1 Corinthians. And certainly, Paul would not be prohibiting women from dressing in, quote, costly clothing, end quote, or giving instructions on hairstyle and jewelry to be applied in all contexts of life. The assembly meeting itself is clearly in view in 1 Timothy 2. Paul states a similar distinction of the assembly meeting from other contexts where Christians gather and live in, in 1 Corinthians 11. It must be said that Paul's usage of the word andros, a singular and congruent with the Adam and Eve account in verses 13 and 14, is the same root word of chapter 2, verse 8, that men should lift up holy hands in prayer. This term can be translated as husband, if warranted by the context, However, the proximity of 2.8 and 2.12 using the same root word, the transition should be consistent, and the translation, I should say. However, it is very unlikely Paul is calling out only husbands to participate by lifting up holy hands in prayer. That would be very much of a stretch. The flow of the passage is addressing corporate worship of the church, and that lends to the translation of man and man in these instances. Now the interpretation of verses 13 through 15. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived 
fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Paul is certainly not stating that men are immune from deception. He is stating, however, that due to Eve's being deceived in the garden, a resulting consequence transpired. The term gaganon, which is come to be, or as the New King James translates it, fell into transgression, which is in the perfect tense, and a tense that states a specific action with ongoing results. This is the same type of tense that was used when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. It's a particular type of tense that an action has ongoing results or has even permanent results in some cases. In this particular case, it says her transgression caused them to, or her deception caused a falling into or coming to be into transgression. Now that's important, which we'll talk about in a moment. Adam's partaking of the fruit was willful. In fact, God's confrontation of Adam did not address the subject of deception. He said to Adam, because you heeded the voice of your wife. On the other hand, Eve's partaking of the fruit was due to being deceived. It is clear throughout Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, that all believers, both men and women, are susceptible to the deceptions of false teaching. Even within the epistle at hand, Paul is giving protective instructions regarding the misuse of the law and the error of restrictions some were teaching as listed in 1 Timothy 4, not to marry, not to eat certain foods, etc. Some believe the admonitions of our passage of chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, are Paul's response to the cultish beliefs concerning Artemis. Others believe the false teaching referenced the epistle pertaining to Gnostic myths. Cross-references within other pastoral epistles of Titus particularly, mention is made of Jewish myths. The more immediate context within 1 Timothy references those who are using the law unlawfully. This points to a Jewish source and misuse of the Mosaic law as components of the false doctrine that Paul is confronting in 1 Timothy. Internal evidence within the biblical text must take precedent over external or extra-biblical evidence. If extra-biblical evidence is necessary, I want to say that again, if anything outside the Bible is necessary for an accurate interpretation of any scripture, that interpretation should be questioned. Internal evidence always takes precedence. St. Hodges writes, professor of New Testament at Dallas Seminary for 26 years, it is then more likely that the errors combated are essentially Jewish and involve this type of fanciful, allegorical speculations on the law, which can be found in rabbinic literature, such as the Jewish book of Jubilees. Whatever be the case, the cause for the restrictions on women, prohibiting them from teaching in the assembly meeting, is the result of Eve's deception in the Garden of Eden. An imputation actually took place, and the consequences of that imputation 
similar to what mankind has experienced in the light of Adam's sin. I think everybody here believes in the imputation of Adam's sin. We are all sinners in Adam. We also, on the positive side, believe in the imputation of righteousness through Jesus Christ. We have been imputed righteousness. But there's more than just those two imputations. There's the imputation of role. This might be one of the more challenging quotations, but I've decided to share it with you and ask you for at least consideration. The gaganon, that's the verb that says in the perfect tense, fell into transgression, provides the true clue to the interpretation. A perfect tense, it applies not simply to Eve in the past, but to woman in the generic sense and with a present relevance. The apostle views the woman as standing under the guilt incurred for her by the first woman. She is now in a state of transgression which causes her to lose the privilege she might have had in the public instruction of God's word in the church. Her silence in the church is mute testimony to the reality of the failure of her kind in Eve in the garden. The fall of man in the Garden of Eden has led to the passivity of the male and the desire of the woman to experience the frustration that results from the tension and conflict as John Morrison outlined. This undoubtedly spills over into the church and necessitated apostolic response. In a study of the theology of a temple, it can be argued that the Garden of Eden was itself the first temple where God met man. According to 1 Corinthians 3, the corporate church under the current dispensation is the temple of the Holy Spirit where God and man meet. The gathering of believers in the assembly meeting is that special occasion reflecting restored fellowship and harmony with God where God and man meet. And it's interesting that Adam and Eve and their created order and experience in the garden are referenced in Paul's writings as it relates to the roles of men and women in the church. This is a study that would take much more time for another time. Concerning chapter 2, verse 15, about what does it mean for a woman to be saved through the bearing of children, the New Testament translates this particular word as a third-person singular. She shall be saved through the bearing of children. Consistent in number, the third-person plural, she shall be saved, modifies the word minosin, which is translated if they continue. Or, yeah, if they continue, that subject has to, excuse me, I'm sorry, I I confused that over. The third-person plural of minosin has to modify what is plural. And that subject would be the participle, the Greek word is technagonios, which is translated as childbearing. In other words, to make it simple, when Paul says, she shall be saved through the bearing of children, she, of course, is singular, 
the bearing of children, children is plural, then if they continue, the question is, who is the they? The woman or the children? It has to be the children because the word is also plural. It plural modifies plural. So in other words, Paul is saying, she shall be saved through the bearing of children if those children continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In that particular issue, the question arises, saved from what? Eternal hell? The obvious answer is a resounding no. Likewise, Paul is also not teaching that bearing of children is the divine call and assignment for all women, and that includes even marriage. That, too, would be contrary to other clear portions of Scripture. It must always be understood by Bible students that the verb to save and the noun salvation do not demand a soteriological interpretation of deliverance from eternal punishment in its usage. Simply stated, these terms simply mean to rescue or to deliver or to preserve, the same way we use the terms in English. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that when it says this, and I quote, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. In that context, he was referring to confronting false doctrine. Save them from the impact, deliver them from the impact of that which is false. But back to chapter 2, what will the woman be saved from? If she is restricted from teaching in the assembly meeting or exercising authority in the assembly meeting, then what shall we shall be saved from if her children continue in those godly characteristics? The context points to the children benefiting from the discipling initiatives of their mother her impact and ministry and effectiveness is not without redemption from Eve's transgression and deception. In other words, Paul is saying Eve's deception will not prevent her from an eternal impact by investing into the lives of her children if her children continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Timothy himself serves as an example of this truth. Paul writes in his second epistle, quote, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded in you as well. Later on in 2 Timothy, he says, but you must continue in the things that you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures. Real must, remember, must be remembered that God has used women through the centuries to not only teach God's truth, but to deliver God's people, both physical and spiritual, and not from spiritual annihilation. The midwives in Exodus 1 <clears throat> heroically saved the Israelites from being eradicated from the earth by refusing to obey the king of Egypt. Hannah bypassed both her husband and the high priest Eli, going directly to God that resulted 
in the birth of Samuel, and due to his birth, hundreds of years of spiritual dearth, now the voice of God was being spoken because of the woman Hannah and her faith in what she did in bringing Samuel to be that voice of God. Dr. Bruce Walkie writes, Hannah is the heroine of the scene of birth of Samuel. Hannah's prayer transforms a nation. Rather, she turns to a prayer. She reorganizes her life by vowing to give Samuel back to the I am all the days of his life. Regarding the midwives of Exodus, Walkie writes, the God-fearing midwives, insignificant women by the world's standards, foil the plan of the Pharaoh who embodied the beings and powers of Egypt's gods, making him a quasi or semi-divine being. The scene peaks in the third foiled plan. God frustrates Pharaoh's general edict to all Egyptians to drown every Israelite baby by having his own daughter ironically save the boy who will defeat Egypt, and once again, women, this time by their feminine intuition, defeat the Pharaoh, God is not mocked. In poetic justice, God kills all of Egypt's firstborn at the first Passover and drowns Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. In a delicious irony, women who fear God defeat the mighty Pharaoh. This is very much in line with what Paul says, and the woman will be saved through the childbearing if those children continue in faith, love, holiness. The great eternal impact of godly women investing in children and having worldwide impact through it. Only the judgment seat of Christ will we become fully aware of the eternal contribution that mothers have had who have trained and discipled their children. To undermine the importance of this role is evidence of cultural influence or the unawareness of the high value that God places on motherhood. This truth is so woven in the book of Proverbs my son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. I conclude with saying these words. Interpretation that has stood the test of time, including centuries, is not the basis for interpretation to be correct. I have heard from some that new views are more progressive. The implication was that they were advanced. I would caution those thoughts. Even though an interpretation who has stood the test of time is not the basis for adoption of it, exegesis is always the basis when examining the biblical text. However, in balance, it must also be realized that within the newly formed or published interpretations arises that are counter to historical understandings. There is reason for pause and extraordinary and detailed examination. 
And I hope that this seminar has provided that for you. Going a little bit beyond our stated agenda, um, but I'm going to keep my comments here shorter maybe than the allotted time. Um, again, we are desiring this morning to look at biblical passages um, somewhat in detailed or even more broadly like the Genesis passages. What, what, what has God said in His Word on this topic? And, um, and it's a challenge. It is, uh, you know, Bible study can be hard work. But um, as, as we see and understand the details of the, of the passages and the broad pictures of Scripture, uh, we strongly will hold a complementarian position. And that's just a, a word that is tagged to this, but there are roles that God has ordained within His creation, and that carries over to the home, and it carries over to the church. And as Paul or Peter or other writers wrote these things, predominantly Paul, uh, what did he mean when he wrote these things? They're hard sayings. I don't allow a woman to teach or to exert authority over man in the assembled gathering. What does that mean? A woman will be saved through childbearing. What does that mean? And we're, we've tried to wrestle with that uh, in, in a fresh and new way as elders and on the pastoral staff team and, and uh, presenting that to you uh, today. Um, the, I think actually interpreting these passages, yes, it's hard work, but it's really kind of the easier part. Um, Words are words, and phrases are phrases, and, and you, if you go into the Greek grammars and you read the different writings, and, and yes, um, I, I will say this, everything that has been presented so far, you can go and find books and articles that are going to say just the opposite, and they'll wrestle even with the passages and the phrases. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. We're right, they're wrong. No, but uh, you know, there are certain principles of hermeneutics, there are certain exegetical principles that you have to apply, and uh, the elders are confident that when we look at these things, read the vast other articles and things that are out there, there are, mis there are mistakes in the thinking and in the exegesis that leads to that more egalitarian position. Now, um, the hard part Again, I think the more easy part is the exegesis. The hard part is how do we apply it? How do we apply these things? Uh, Fellowship Bible Church has been around for 40 years. The complementary position, everything we're sharing with you is really unchanged in 40 years. This is how we have lived out. The question that is raised is, well, but how, how do we apply these things? And I think, uh, and we'll, we're going to share this in, in a few moments, I think that Fellowship Bible Church has made some mistakes in our application of these truths. And I think that has hurt women and hurt Fellowship Bible Church because we have undervalued and the role of women in Fellowship Bible Church. And for that, 
um, we elders take, and not just this current elder board, but even past elder boards. I'll speak for them, even though many of them are with the Lord. But uh, we apologize for that. And I think you've got to be real careful in the application of it. We speak when the Scriptures speak, and we are silent when the Scriptures are silent. And you can have this ministry, ministry creep that takes place, like, well, this is what it says, and all of a sudden, the application of it goes to places that it should not go. And we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Applying it is, is difficult. Now, there's one other set of passages that I'm going to just briefly touch on, is 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. I think the First Timothy passage is the clearer passage. It addresses more definitively the role of women in the formal gathering of the church. 1 Corinthians gives us a window into the life of one particular church, the Corinthian church. And though we may not understand conclusively some of the issues going on there, we do learn some general principles of how God intended the church to operate when they meet together. Um, so here's the, here's the, the passage that uh, we can stumble over oftentimes, verse 34 and 35 of chapter 14. Women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but to subject themselves, just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is, and this is a very strong term, improper or disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Let us cut that, those verses out of the Bible and throw them away, because my goodness, those are embarrassing verses in our modern-day culture. And that's what has been done in the last 56 years in certain segments but we cannot cut those out of the Bible. We just read them. They're there in the Bible. The question is, what do they mean? Now, that little last phrase, in the church, uh, we have to understand that little prepositional phrase, in the church. What is Paul saying? Now, if we go back to chapter 11, verse 17, Paul begins to write the Corinthian church instructions regarding their assembled meetings. So verse 17 talks about, um, I do not praise you because you come together, not for better, but for worse. Or verse 18 says, when you come together. Verse 20, therefore, when you meet together. Or verse 33, when you come together to eat. Or into chapter 14, verse 19, it says, in the church... Or verse 23, therefore, if the whole church assembles together, or when you assemble, verse 26 and verse 28, in the church, so clearly starting in verse 17 through chapter 14, verse 35, there's instructions that have to do with activities that take place when the local church formally assembles together, as Don brought, uh, just brought out. When they assemble to, to partake of the Lord's table, to participate in public instruction and worship. When you assemble, there's something high and holy about the assembling of the saints together. And by the way, let me just put my pastoral hat on for just a second. This is why it is so very important that we meet together on the Lord's day. Not just take two classes up in the learning center and never participate in the assembled gathering. Not saying, uh, we've got company coming at noon. I think I need to stay home and cook 
and miss the assembling of the, of the body together. Not doing what is so generally taking place today in evangelical Christendom where the average believer is 1.67 times a month coming to the assembled gathering. Now, if you got a fever and are coughing in this day of pandemic, and even if we're not in a pandemic, for Pete's sake, stay home. But I don't know of many times that people have a proper excuse not to assemble together. God takes very highly the assembling of the saints together. And he's given instruction that starts in verse 17 of chapter 11 through chapter 14, verse 35, of what is to take place in the assembling together. Now, according to, again, verse 14, uh, uh, chapter 14, 34 to th uh, 45, uh, there was this prohibition of speaking. What's involved in speaking? Well, verse 26 says, uh, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, some has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, just let all things be done for edification. It seems that Paul is focusing on revelatory or instructional communication within the assembly. And he instructs that women were to keep silent in the assembled gathered in those specific areas. Paul delineates specifically in verse 27, speaking in tongues. In verse 27, um, therefore, whoever eats, no, verse uh, 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be two or more, at most three, and then with an interpreter. If you speak, underline that word, speak in a tongue, he must, um, but if there's no interpreter, verse 28, he must keep silent and let him speak to himself and to God. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let others pass judgment. And then he jumps, jumped down to verse 34. He says, women are to keep silent in the church. They are not permitted to speak. So apparently when the church gathered for worship, women were not allowed to participate in the conveying of God's revealed truth via the teaching, the speaking in tongues, prophetic utterances. It's commonly held, though, that in the Corinthian church, that after a prophet spoke, others would critique or even argue with what had been spoken. And some hold, therefore, that what is also being prohibited is women speaking out in this passing judgment upon the prophets. It says in verse 29. However, that little phrase, let others pass judgment, does not necessarily means speaking out in some evaluative or judgmental way. All Paul is saying is that when the Corinthians, that the Corinthians needed to be discerning regarding who was claiming to speak revelatory information from God or being a spokesman for God in prophesying. Remember, in the early church, it didn't have the completed canon. The, the, the word wasn't compiled. It wasn't completed yet. God was giving revelatory information and that had to be discerned, what, does, is, that, is, is this person of character? Is this right? And there had to be a, a, some type of a, a critiquing of that. And so that was going on in the church. And some would say that all Paul is limiting in terms of women speaking is passing that judgment in that revelatory time of the prophets speaking. But the broader context is talking about speaking in multiple ways. 
It is commonly um, the conclusion then that the FBC elders have drawn is that the Apostle Paul was prohibiting women from speaking revelatory truth when the church was formally assembled for worship and instruction, and that the communicating of revealed truth from God was to be presented by the men. Women were to keep silent in that particular area, and in fact, verse 35 says that it is improper or disgraceful for women to speak in this way. Now, that coincides with what Paul instructed in 1 Timothy as well. Now, notice also that Paul ties this instruction to the law. It says, just as the law also said. Paul is basing his instruction not on something unique to the Corinthian church, but on the timeless principles ordained by God of the proper roles of men and women in creation orders found in the Pentateuch and especially Genesis, those things that John Morrison has laid out for us. In other words, the solution to this problem in the Corinthian church was a timeless truth that was grounded in the Old Testament. And again, that's exactly what Paul does in 1 Timothy as John Morrison, uh, as Don Den Hartog has just laid out. But this seems to potentially contradict what Paul had written in chapter 11 earlier when he gives instruction about women praying and prophesying where he says in verse 5, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying and prophesying disgraces her head for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. It's like, well, wait a minute, clearly women can pray and prophesy. Paul is just instructing them here to do it properly. Seems like an, a, a contradiction. The women are to keep silent, but here it says they can pray and prophesy. The apparent contradiction between this passage in chapter 14, 34, and 35 is resolved by understanding the distinction between the different settings of the two passages. And as already noted, Paul's instruction about the formal assembly meetings of the church, it begins in verse 17. That's when he starts using the phrases, when you gather in the assembly. Those phrases aren't used earlier. What Paul is addressing prior to that is more general instructions regarding how the church should function. So let's back up into the context. Go back to uh, chapter 10, verse 31. Let's pick that up. Chapter 10, verse 31. What is Paul saying? Well, he says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. I think here he's talking about eternal salvation. Um, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. God's glory is what should be foremost in the minds of believers. And he says God is glorified when you do not seek your own profit, but you seek the profit of others. And then Paul begins in chapter 11, verse 1, and he says, So be imitators of me, just as I am also of Christ. Christ did not seek his own profit. He came and he gave his life for the benefit of others. He said in, chapter, in, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, I've, I've glorified you, Father. My, I, I have finished the, my, my, my role here, and it was to glorify you. And Paul says, now imitate me as I have also imitated Christ. Paul's life was a testimony of that Christ-like attitude of caring for the benefit of others so that they may be saved and living a life that glorifies God. Now, these instructions 
go beyond just when the church is gathered for worship. In fact, in verse 27 of chapter 10, Paul is talking about how we are to behave when we're invited to an unbeliever's home and we're offered meat to eat that has been sacrificed to idols. That's outside the assembly gathering. Whatever you do in word or in deed, even if you're in someone's home and they're rank pagans and they're just offering something to eat that is just sacrificed to idols, eat it. Don't worry about that. Honor God. Think of their benefit as they're serving that to you. And just maybe what you say to them will lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 11, Paul addresses some concerns that he has with believers in Corinth who are violating the principles that he had just stated. That is, seeking the benefit of others and glorifying God. The issues involve the proper God-ordained roles again. That's verse 3. He says, now I praise you, verse 2, because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions as I've delivered them to you. But, verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Issues were involving God-ordained roles and the proper behavior, specifically for women in fulfilling those roles. Apparently, the conduct of some women was bringing shame on their husbands and discrediting the God-given headship role. And so he goes on in verse 3 through 9. Uh, again, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, well, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. The woman is the glory of man. And for man, um, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for man's sake. Oh, there we go. There's some of those verses I just soon like to cut out and burn but they're there, <laughs> and we don't have the right to cut them out or ignore them. They're there, but we have a right and an obligation to interpret them properly. When women were, obviously, women were obviously praying and prophesying, Paul wanted to make sure they were doing it with a proper heart attitude. However, starting in chapter 11, verse 17, Paul begins to focus on proper order now within the gathered church services, based on his instructions in chapter 14. Women were not allowed to speak prophetic utterances when the church had assembled together, as we've already noted. Chapter 14, however, says nothing about women not praying in worship gatherings, or does 1 Timothy 2. Men are specifically called upon to pray in 1 Timothy 2.8. It doesn't say women can't pray in the worship gatherings, and that could be viewed as an argument from silence. But here's the bottom line conclusion. How can the Corinthian women bring an appropriate sense of honor to their husbands? Now, obviously, we're talking about married women, and that's what Paul seemed to have a concern about. By having their heads covered when they prayed and prophesied in public. And this would have been very important in that first century Corinthian context. This simple act of submission and humility reflects the goodness of God's design in the creation order, keeps glory moving away from oneself, and in so doing, not only is the husband honored, but more importantly, God is honored and glorified. The purpose today is not to go into the details of this passage and the head coverings and all, the, all that's involved with that. It's just this general principle of 
we gather, and when we gather, there are certain instructions. These verses are prohibiting the exercise of doctrinal teaching of being the directional authority over the churches by women in the gathered assemblies. These verses are not based on some localized problem of the first century. They are based on how God has designed creation order, both in 1 Timothy and in these passages. He anchors these uh, directives to the Old Testament, to the law, to uh, creation order that's found in, in the book of Genesis. And when properly, I think, exegeted and interpreted, they teach that when the church is assembled for corporate worship, women are to take on a quiet and submissive role, while the function of doctrinal instruction and directional authority is reserved for men. Now again, everything we've just talked about, we can find articles and books that say exactly the opposite. It does make a challenge, but as elders of the church, we have to go and look at these passages and say, okay, let's remove all the emotion out of it, if all possible. Let's try to remove our biases out of it. What is the teaching here? And the bottom line is, when the body assembles together in this formal gathering assembly, there are restrictions, and Paul has laid that out. Why are there, why are there restrictions? Yes, it would be easy just to say, oh my God, that's just first century old archaic, or Paul was just a, a biased man, and we can just throw out what he says. Why are there restrictions? I'm not certain, other than there's something in the heart of God that is laid out in creation order. And as Mike Thomas has shared, there's something about the unseen realm that peers in and, it's, and um, is, is watching, is concerned about how men and women fulfill their roles within the home and I think within the church. And God is honored. And the bottom line is whatever we do in word or deed, we have to do it to glorify God. Now, as I said earlier, I think some of the ways we have applied this have not glorified God here at Fellowship Bible Church. And I think we have the pendulum swung a little too far um, and to the neglect of, of pursuing women. You know, we, we end up creating a culture of permission then where a gifted teacher or a gifted woman comes to elders and say, <clears throat> am I permitted to do this? Man, if I had a dollar over the 30 years I've been here for every time a woman came, could I, are we permitted to do this? I'd, I'd be a little more wealthy than I am right now. Um, but what about a culture of pursuit where we understand and recognize the value, the giftedness um, of, of women, the, the brilliance and, and everything else, and their role within these given scriptural mandates, and pursued women. Said, hey, uh, wh what would you do in this situation? We haven't heard from you. In fact, we've neglected to hear from you. What would you do in there? We're just a bunch of men that are, are going to have only, you know, a half a brain on some of this stuff once in a while. What would you do, and we need your input? That's a culture of pursuit. And I, for one, want to apologize that I don't think we've done that well here at Fellowship Bible Church. I, I, totally. I might be, some of you may say, I think we've done it fine, but I, I think the elders have been convicted of that. 
Now, that leads us to say some things regarding affirmations and denials. I just want to jump over to that, that um, page of affirmation and denials. It's kind of the conclusions that we want to draw. Affirmations and denials. And so here's the first one. As elders here at Fellowship Bible Church, and I'm speaking for elders, we affirm that both men and women have been created equally in the image of God and are entitled to the privileges and held accountable to the responsibilities that come with reflecting the image of God. We deny that either gender has been given or is entitled to greater dignity and worth in society, the church, or the home, the church, or the coming kingdom of God. The second affirmation, we affirm that there is a divine order in creation and that Adam, being created first and given the initial commands of God, was in a position of spiritual leadership to carry out those commands and that Eve was created as Adam's complementary helper, uniquely made in God's image to carry out her role. We deny, however, that the divine order of the creation of man and woman that different roles were designed for them by God, detracts from the woman's value, dignity, or importance since she is equally created in God's image. Thirdly, we want to affirm that Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, befriended women. He taught women. He accorded them legal rights. He offered them the full benefits of discipleship. From the beginning to the end of his ministry, women played vital roles. However, we also affirm that Jesus selected 12 men to be his leadership team of apostles. We deny, though, that by selecting these 12 men to be his apostles, Jesus' high view of women was in any way diminished or invalidated, or that he could be labeled a sexist. We also affirm that the primary spiritual leadership role in the church, as stated in the New Testament, as we've outlined here this morning, is the office of elder and has to be held by spiritually qualified men. But we deny that male leadership in the role of spiritual overseers is only relegated to the first century church and that it is not applicable today. We deny that. We also affirm, likewise, that the roles of church-wide spiritual oversight, such as pastors and pastoral leadership teams, are extensions of the role of elders that work in conjunction with elders and in tandem with elders and should also be held by spiritually qualified men. We deny the claim that men in such spiritual oversight roles lessens the effectual overall ministry of women and to women. We also affirm that male leadership to be effective in their oversight roles need to pursue the voices of women to help shape the spiritual direction of the church and to honor the co-equal image bearers of God. We deny that male leadership can provide effective spiritual oversight without listening to and incorporating the spiritual concerns, insights, and wisdom that women can and must offer in order for FBC to fulfill their mission of preparing and deploying dependent disciples of Jesus Christ. We affirm that spiritual gifts are distributed to members of the body of Christ regardless of gender, race, social standing, etc., and should be used for 
quote, the common good of the body in building up the body towards Christ's likeness. We deny that restrictions placed on how certain gifts, like teaching, are used by women within the assembled gathering of the church negates their value or hinders the impact of the use of spiritual gifts beyond these restrictions. And finally, we affirm or finally we affirm that all members of the church, in keeping with Hebrews 13, 17, should be in glad submission to the elder body, and that all should be in glad and sacrificial submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the head of the church. We deny that all women are subject to the leadership and authority of all men. We further deny that biblical submission is indicative of subordination or inequality or that it lessens co-equal image-bearing of God in any way. Those are some of our summaries of what we want to affirm or what we want to deny. Now, um, you know, there's probably three possible responses to what we have presented today. One response is to say, all right, I see that in the passage. I think Okay, I mean, I have no problem with that. I, I'll accept that. I, I've always accepted that. It's no big deal. I, I accept it. I appreciate what the elders have, have shared. I understand it, I, and I accept it. And you walk out of here fine. A second possible response is that, well, the elders have made a clear case, but I don't entirely agree with it. Before the Lord, I don't know um, if, if it's, exactly what I hold to, but hey, I'm willing to submit uh, without contributing in any way in a, in, in, to disharmony, um, either because it's not important enough to me or because I respect their efforts to come to their conclusions. So I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. I'll, I'll still believe certain things, and I'll, I'm going to wrestle with it more deeply, but uh, I I'm fine. I put myself under the direction of the elders as we are called to do in the church. A third response is uh, the elders have made a case that I don't think accurately reflects the Scriptures, and um, I, I'm not going to disrespect the elders, but I can't worship at a place that holds to something that I don't think is scriptural. They haven't convinced me uh, that this is what the Bible teaches, and uh, so I'll entrust Fellowship Bible Church to the Lord and express to the elders my appreciation, uh, but I think it's time for me to go to a church that maybe is more in line with my view on the role of women in the church. And that's fine too. Uh, the body of Christ is very large. Um, but I think those are uh, three possible um, responses that, um, get, that can be made. Mike, why don't you come up and just talk a little bit about some of the ways that uh, we can apply this, and then we'll have some question and answer. Um, you'll also find in your, in your booklet, in the pamphlet, a section called application. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because we do want to get to these question and answers. Uh, but want to highlight four of these uh, applications that we as the elders have, are making uh, at Fellowship Bible Church here. So 
having looked at these and reevaluated the application of scriptural teaching on the role of women within the church and have concluded the following, we have concluded that women should use their gifts to the glory of God within the formal worship gathering, except in roles obvious leadership and doctrinal exposition. For example, primary worship pastor, teaching pastor, elder prayer role, etc. So that's our, that's it. That's application number one. Women may offer prayers, songs of praise, and personal testimonies that are part of the approved worship liturgy under the authority of the worship pastor. Thirdly, women may assist in the welcoming ministries of Fellowship Bible Church as directed by our deacon ministry, which includes greeting, hosting, ushering, collecting of the offering, and serving of communion as needed. And then lastly, in our um, list here, women may use their teaching gifts in a mixed gender audience in venues other than the formal worship gathering upon elder approval and upon pastoral oversight. This would include such things as leading a counseling conference session or assisting in the teaching of a, a biblical training center class provided there is a male co-teacher. Now knowing that there will be further applicational questions um, asked concerning other various ministry opportunities for women, we the elders reserve the right to evaluate and decide such opportunities as they arrive, arise. However, it is our desire that women will be, in, as Mark has said, increasingly sense that greater freedom and a culture of pursuit rather than a culture of permission within our FBC body. Um, and so, um, Mark, why don't you come on back up and you can bring the, the list of questions. And um, again, I want to reiterate that these questions are in regards to the biblical interpretation portion, not application questions. I have those questions and we will answer them at a later time. Yeah, and we will uh, we'll, we'll respond um, to all of these um, in some form or fashion, um, but maybe not right now. So a good a good question. Um, so am I up here alone? A good question uh, that is often looked at is asked from Galatians chapter three verse twenty-eight. Remember that passage where it says where Paul says. Well, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you, have all, you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abram's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So, uh, what is that? How does that apply? Well, again, context. What, what was Paul saying when he was saying there's no male or female, or no Jew or Greek? I mean, obviously, he wasn't uh, saying there. There's no, I, I don't recognize that there are Greek speakers or Jewish people. I don't, um, I don't recognize that there are the, the, the male gender or the female gender. Um, but the context is telling us, verse 26, he has just said, for you are all sons of God or children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourself with Christ. There is, so in God's salvation economy, um, it doesn't matter if it's a Gentile or a Jew, a black, white, or, or, or green, or male or female, the gospel is applicable and is salvific. What Christ did on the cross does not know gender or race or a social status or, um, um, you know, a person's nationality. Anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ has full access to the forgiveness, the mercy, and the grace of God and is welcomed in as a full member of his family. Um, that's what Galatians 5, it, it is not in a context that he's talking about church order. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's often maybe times taken out of context and then applied in church order. Context, context, context. That's what Galatians um, uh, 2.28 uh, refers to. Now, um, yeah. So that, that, that's one question. Hopefully there's that. Any, I wish we had a roving mic, but we don't. In this auditorium, we can't really do that. Um, so uh, let's see here. First Timothy, let's go into that passage again. First Timothy 2, 12, uh, you know, a woman must quietly receive. But then Paul says in verse 12, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So, okay, if we accept this interpretation, one way to possibly negate it in terms of our application for us today is say, well, that was, again, Paul's opinion, because he says, I do not allow a woman. He doesn't say this is God saying this or that um, Jesus saying that. Um, so is this really a commandment or calling from God? Um, and, and again, good question. But although I, we, this comes down to understanding things related to um, inspiration of the Scriptures, um, the, the apostolic authority that Paul had when he communicated God's Word. Um, if, there, if every directive in the New Testament uh, said, um, God said, do this. You take the book of James. Don, um, correct me on this, or did he leave? Where is he? Did he, did he skedaddle out? No, he didn't. Uh, I think of the 108 verses in the book of James, 108 verses, 54 of them are actually imperatives. They're commands. 54 commands out of 108 verses in James. But guess what? I don't think any of them said, and God said this. God said that. God demands that. The understanding the nature of divine inspiration as conveyed through the Apostle Paul that he wrote that down. Um, the, now, interesting things. Uh, what, what about when Paul says, I give my opinion on this? That's another whole discussion. Um, but... Um, um, Paul has given instruction to the church. He's speaking as um, the apostle uh, to the church, and he's giving the instruction. And unless it's negated somewhere, we have to accept that as authoritative for the church today. 
but if we, if we accept these perspectives and there are, that there are roles, differentiation, uh, differences and roles in the church, and we look at the different roles, that because I can't do this, it, it, does it somehow devalue me? Um, so if, um, you know, it, it, a woman comes and hears this kind of teaching, is it possible that they could jump to the conclusion, um, uh, man, I, I don't think I want to be, I don't, I don't think I want a God who is calling me to be silent in the assembly. And it brings in this question again of value and worth. Now, here's how I would respond to that. I am absolutely 100% convinced it has nothing to do with one's value or worth. Now, if a person jumps to that conclusion, well, uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to work and be discipled on that. But here's why I can say 100% conclusively it has nothing to do with one's value or worth. Because God said it does nothing to do with one's value or worth. Value and worth is established in creation. He made the male and female in the image of God. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who's he talking to? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Yes, there is a sense of order, um, but there is equal value and essence in the Godhead. And he says, I'm going to make man in my image. So he takes two distinct creations, man and woman, two distinct um, genders, sexes, and he says, um, I'm, I want that to reflect um, my person. One God yet displayed in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit. So he brings two distinct individuals together, man and woman, and he brings them into a one-flesh relationship that reflects the honor and the glory of the Trinity. As a woman, your worth and value is as valuable and worth uh, as, as God the Son and God the Spirit is to God the Father. Um, just because there are roles does not at all now, if you want it to view that way, well, then, you, you know, that's a conclusion you'll draw. I'm just telling you, God doesn't draw that conclusion, and neither should we. Role differentiations does not equate to a lack of value and worth. Now, if that were true, um, I mean, I, I don't want to get too off here, but I think sometimes you women have maybe played that game with us men because, um, you know, okay, granted, maybe we're not quite as intuitive. We haven't been created certain ways or, we, we, you know, we didn't bear children. We can cry when we hit our thumb with a hammer and you have born children. And, um, but that does not make men any less valuable because of the role we take. So, Yes, there, there is a, there, 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 there's a place for anyone within the household of God. Um, and I think that's important to, to reemphasize. Um, this might be a good question for John, but we do see Adam naming his wife pre and post-fall, but what of Genesis 
where it says that God named them. So, in other words, in what sense did Adam name um, Genesis 5, 2 said, and he created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day in which they were created. Um, well, they, they were, when God created um, the six days of creation, you know, the light and dark and the animal and the, the vegetation, and um, he called it out. God said, and it was true. And then on the sixth day, he creates this apex of all creation. Um, let us create man in our image. Let us form and fashion uh, um, this, this, this highest of all creation. And it created him male and female, he created him. And he gave him a designation. This is humankind. This is separate than animals. This is separate than bugs. This is separate than plants, the planetary bodies. This is man. This is my creation of humankind. And that's how God named them. He, he placed the value and worth of his creation of humankind. But in order, as we go to chapter 2, as John laid out, the, the creation account is, um, uh, is, uh, is, is kind of read, read over again, and it started over again in chapter 2. And he gets down more than nitty-gritty of what, how God did this creation, and he creates Adam first. And it gives Adam this responsibility to name the animals and to, to not, as John went through, not to, uh, um, to, to, to cultivate and keep the garden, which, by the way, are, are terms that are used elsewhere in the Old Testament of worship, of serving and worship God. He's calling man to be a worshiper and a servant of his. And, um, and then God takes from the man, the rib, um, um, the, the, the woman, and brings her to the man in this beautifully designed uh, marriage scene. And, uh, and that's when Adam now named her. This is now uh, bone of my bones and flesh of my... She shall be called woe woman. Uh, because she, and, that, and Adam did that role. God creates mankind, gives him that blessing of humankind, and then uh, Eve is created and... Um, yeah. And um, Genesis 3 and verse 20, because it says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. So we have two places where he names her. Genesis 2, he names her Isha, because she's taken out of Ish. She is woman because she's taken out of man. But then he also gives her this. That, that name is a generic name for all women, but then he gives her a personal name also, which is this name Eve. So in answer to the question, yes, God does name mankind, but he clearly gives the man an opportunity, which the man takes generically, this is woman, specifically, this is Eve. Right. And I think it's important to also um, note that when God explains to Adam I'm going, to cre- I'm going to give you a corresponding helper. Um, and this is brought out, and I think most of you may understand this, but it's a Hebrew word, Ezar, that is um, applied oftentimes to God himself. 
God is our helper. He is a very present help in time of need. This is not some low-level servant groveled position. It's a corresponding helper. Now, why did God do that? In fact, I think there's something very important here to understand. God just gave Adam the command, do not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the garden. I think that's verse 18. He, he just gave that command, and then, or verse 17. And then in verse 18, he, it's like he looks at Adam. Adam, you're to serve me, you're to worship me, you're to cultivate and keep. Um, and, but all the way, by the way, don't eat of that tree. And it's like he steps back and looks at Adam, and then he says in verse 18, it is not good that man is alone. Why did God say that? Well, you look at all the animals and procreation and all that stuff. But God made that statement immediately after giving him the command to be his worshiper, to be his servant, to not eat of the tree of the garden of the Middle East. And that's when he creates the corresponding Azar, the, the corresponding helper, the one who comes alongside and together work with man, woman in combination, in uh, oneness, in unity as a one flesh relationship to honor and serve God. And it's almost like God was saying, man is going to get off track. He needs a helper. I, now, that's an argument from silent, but he could also say, well, the woman might get off track too, and she needed the man. But it's a high and holy calling and to relegate that term and to be embarrassed about it and to try to somehow figure out another way that God really didn't mean what he said um, is, is improper. Um, Don, uh, maybe could you, do you still have your mic? Yeah. Um, so again, verse 15 of that Second Timothy passage, it's um, what, what, what do we do, what about women who do not bear children, and I think you alluded to that, but maybe um, expand that women will be preserved, be saved through the bearing of children. You alluded to that, maybe expand upon that. Is there a deeper interpretation to this passage, uh, which would uh, include all women, you know, childless, uh, uh, childbearers or not? Um, make sure I'm on here. This passage should not be understood as if Paul is exhausting the whole, um, not only value, but roles of all women in all contexts. We have to look at the whole of Scripture for something like that. And so, Paul does address singleness. Um, we know that, especially in the Old Testament, there were women that wanted children and couldn't have them. Um, so, these, this verse 15, and certainly in no way, is teaching that it's the divine call of all women to have children and then to disciple them, so to speak, or invest in them, that they are the ones that then grow in those listed characteristics of godliness. They're discussing whether I'm right or not, I think, up there. <laughs> Keep talking. <laughs> Okay, Iowa plays uh, Northwestern at 3.30 today. Is that um, timer right? <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, I, I do want to, are you done, Don? Yeah, that's, <laughs> in more ways than one. <laughs> um, by the way, 
this is not the formal gathering of the body, is it? That'll be tomorrow, tonight or tomorrow morning. That's how we interpret it. It's a little hard to, uh, again, application of these passages can, is a little difficult. Um, what does it look like? How, how do we apply these things? Um, now, what the elders have said, we would have no problem. Christy Vocal is sitting right here in the second row. Christy is a great teacher. I, in fact, I think she's more of on the line of a Bible scholar. And we have others in this congregation that, Annette, you, you know, a, a great teacher and, and others in our congregation. I would have no problems with Christy getting up here and expanding a little bit more on the book of Genesis because I think you've got some good insights um, as, as a student of, of the scriptures. Would have no problem with that. Uh, at all. Um, now, it does say, I don't allow a woman to teach or exert authority over a man. If she gets up here, isn't she teaching and exerting authority over a man? Yep. But not when the church is gathered formally. There's something about that formal gathering of the body that is very important. Now, elders, have I interpreted that correctly? I mean, is that, don't, don't stone the, but that's, that's how we understand that. Um, it's, it, now, it, it is a little tricky so, say, uh, Adult Learning Center. Yeah. I think they, I think they turned mine on and yours off. I'm so, okay. Exactly. Right. May, I, may, I, may I comment on that, Mark? Okay, uh, being up in the Adult Learning Center, um, you know, I, I concur with Mark that we have gifted women uh, that um, we've utilized in classes and so forth. Uh, the elders have um, looked at the Learning Center as an extension of the assembly meeting. So we've had um, that in play in terms of the students who attend those classes being female. But I just wanted to say, I, I ran out of time when I did my, I thought I'd easily get my manuscript in 15 minutes and I was wrong. Um, I just want to say on a personal basis that for me, a lot of the disparities of the role of women in the church that I see in the New Testament have been resolved for me personally by seeing the distinction between the assembly meeting and all other contexts that Christians meet. That has eliminated um, a, a vast part of the disparities for me personally, yeah. where I'm very comfortable. And I, so I appreciate that emphasis that Mark has given, and I tried to give it myself a little bit, but uh, just on a personal testimony, that's, that's my case. Now let me, let me just uh, invite you into a little elder meeting, because uh, so, so what about, you know, uh, on, on the Lord's Day, uh, the adult learning center up there. Yes, it's not in this room, but it is the church gathered on the Lord's day. Um, do, do these does this still apply to that? And that's over the years we've said uh, it probably does, and 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 Don has helped us wrestle with that and, and see. So we're, we're continuing to wrestle with that, but um, when it when it comes to applying these things, would it be easier just to cut them out of the Bible and say forget it? At times, yes, it would. Um, you happen to be a part of a church that takes very seriously the scriptures. And um, so that's why we're, we're, we're agonizing over these things. How do we apply this? 
in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a modern day culture because there's things we do today that Apostle Paul probably never even thought of. Um, I, I know, um, I would have no problem on, in a sermon, I probably have done it before, to quote from uh, Elizabeth Elliot. I mean, she's a, with the Lord, but what a great author and great insights. I have no problems doing that. But if Elizabeth Elliot were alive and she came in the assembled meeting, she herself would, would say, I would, take a, uh, I, would be, I would not teach or exert authority over man in that assembled meeting. But for me to read from her book in the assembled meeting, that's, that it, is, is, it is different. It is different. Um, it's not her being here and exerting that authority. Um, so, so, I mean, as Mike said, we're still wrestling with this thing. Here's one question. Uh, what is the, in, there in 1 Corinthians 11.10, what is that symbol of authority on a woman's head? I have no idea. <laughs> Lisa and I were a part of a church when we were in seminary. It was called a Plymouth Brethren Assembly, the Brethren Assemblies. And they did uh, teach that in, in the in the formal gathering of the church that the, the women had some type of a, a covering on their head as they participated in the life of the uh, and and um, and drew it from that passage um, I, I do many many commentators say there was probably something more unique in terms of an application to the Corinthian culture um, and there has there in that culture it was all the more evident that if a woman came um, it would, it would be disgraceful in some way not to have her head covered. Um, one commentator said in our day and age, it, it might be a symbol like a, a wedding ring or some, some symbol that says, um, you know, I'm his and she's mine and, and we're together on this. Um, but I, I don't know for sure. Someone else may know, um, but we're running out of time. Um, so, um, again, uh, w- what does it mean when it says that she is the, the, the glory of the man in that passage and man is the glory of Christ? And, again, I think in, what, in the context of what Paul is, is talking about. And, 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 and we have to, this is another hard thing about Bible study. Um, in fact, I'm, I, again, I want to just give kudos to, to Christy Bokel on, on some of this. There is so much background, uh, historical, theological background that we in the 21st century miss. We, we, we miss. I, I, when I was teaching the book of Luke, I got a, a nice email from Christy when I was going through uh, uh, the baptism of John and John's baptism and how that that idea of baptism, the mikvahs, that if you go to Israel, you'll see the, the, the baptism pools, the mikvahs and the cleansings and the washings, was so very much a part of Jewish society. It isn't part of our society. We don't have mikvahs here where people come into the worship center, you gotta go dip in the water and, and do this ritual cleansing and stuff. And John was doing that out in the, the desert. He was calling people to repent and be Baptize, go through the cleansing, identify. Um, uh, so there's, there's a lot of background. That, and, and so good students of the scripture, we have to do our due diligence. We have to do our understanding. So for instance, in this passage, I think Paul has this breadth of understanding coming out of Genesis again. The woman was created second. 
um, as the corresponding helper so that man can honor God and they together can worship and serve God together. But it was not good for man to be alone. He needed that corresponding helper. And what is her role? How does she bring glory to the, to the man? By coming alongside him and assisting him and giving him insight and wisdom of what it means to honor and glorify God. And you bring glory and honor to the man by not, um, uh, by not being, uh, you bring honor and glory to the man by being respectful, by being loving and, and, and caring, but directive in terms of what the Holy Spirit is teaching you to help that man serve and honor God. It's bringing glory to that man to fulfill your role that has been laid out in the book of Genesis. So that, that would be one way I would handle that. Um, maybe one more here. Can I do one more? No? Let me see if it's a hard one. If it's not, then... Let, uh, this, this is a technical question, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 2.12 about the, the conjunction, the corresponding conjunction, ude, with the two infinitives, to teach and to exert authority over, would there have been another construction used that would um, uh, have merged the two concepts together? Uh, I don't think there would be a, a different conjunction used. Two different words could have been used, mainly nouns. So, um, in fact, in one of the authors that is more the egalitarian, he, he disputed this position of the two infinitives and that they are merged into one idea. The problem is I think every illustration he used were two nouns. He didn't use two, two infinitives. So this is technical, but there are two infinitives that are used to teach and to exert authority over a man. And ude is that corresponding. So in that construction... Um, there will always be two separate ideas. Now, they will convey a similar concept. Um, if you looked at Acts chapter 4, verse 18, um, or Acts 21, 21, is, um, I think Acts 4, 18 says something about that the Pharisees told the apostles, no longer can you speak or teach in his name. Those are real similar to speak and to teach. They're two separate ideas, but in other words, don't stand up for Jesus is kind of the common idea. Um, and, and that's conveyed in this. It's, it's really hard and it's technical. They're two distinct verbal uh, infinitives to, to, to teach or to exert authority, and you have to maintain their distinctiveness. But basically, the big idea is... Um, Men are to lead the church, and women are not. There's a big one idea that, that it, it conveys. So um, if there were some nouns that were used and connecting, then you can, it comes with, a, it's called a hendiades, and you can say um, uh, Mark is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a bad and confusing teacher. And you can convey it as he is confusingly bad. Or he is badly confused. And so it's an hendites, it's, it's connected together that way. In this construction, you can't do that. I, I, the, the grammar, the syntax does not permit that. 
Paul is not saying, I permit, well, I do not permit women to teach domineeringly. That it, you just can't do that. In fact, a point of grammar or of textual grammar here, if you looked at the Greek text, five words separate to teach and to exert authority over. They're not even real closely connected. Where in, in, I think typically in the Greek text and in Hadides, it would be close together. So there's numerous things that um, I could go on and talk about. Verse 11, there's parallel constructions. and uh, Anyway, um, we'll, we'll get to some of these others later. Yes. Okay. Yes. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for taking all those questions. Let me sit down. Uh, at this time, we would like to close and we'll ask Phil if he'd come up and close us in prayer. Um, and thank you all for coming. And thanks for, to those who are listening to this online as we have recorded it audited, audited with sound, <coughs> but not with video. Well, seriously, <laughs> the levity is, uh, is good, and uh, the lessons are good, and whether you agree with them or not, you can say this, the elders and the pastors have sincerely looked at these things. So let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do come humbly before you. We're praying for unity among all who serve in the church. And we pray that we will have a, uh, a heart of Christ regarding who does teach. Our hearts are regarded as, as, as Christ is regarded as the head of the church. Our, our hearts are sincerely tuned to him. He is the bridegroom. And he will return for man and woman alike his bride, and in them all will be fulfilled, that we each and together are, are one. But in, even now, we are even now washed and, uh, and justified and being sanctified in his name by your spirit. You are worthy, Lord, of all power and, and honor. All glory is yours, Lord. And our worth, uh, as, the, uh, as the popular song says, is, is in Christ alone, not in any externals. And so we, we set those aside that we may find in each other equal worthiness under Christ. You've revealed to us in this church age your purpose, you know, that your church would demonstrate your man and angel, your manifold wisdom, your redemption from the penalty of sin. Before the fall, all was in perfect order, and since the fall, you have allowed us to see the consequences of sin and to experience them. And all nature groans for your return. In this world, there will be troubles, revolutions, and all sorts of, of madness. But you've called us, your church, men and women, saved by your grace to be light to this world, to glorify you in all that we do. You've delivered us from the power of darkness, redeemed us, forgiven us by the blood of your Son. And while we are to be subject to one another and submit to one another, we desire to be fully faithful 
And so we examine our hearts and diligently study your words, seeking understanding and application. And we continue to do so for how we may serve according to your will and certainly not according to our biases. We love your word, Lord. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.